Welcome to this sample audio clip, which comes from the series entitled Multi-Hall Conversations with Jim Brown. In this recording, Jim speaks to multi-hall sailor and boat builder Roger Hatfield. Roger is the owner of Gold Coast Yachts, which operates on St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands. You can find out more about this historic audio series at www.outrigmedia.com. was extremely destructive on the island. The, uh, the well-documented winds approaching and hovering over St. Croix were 140 knots steady state, and the reason St. Croix got so, so badly hurt was that the eye slowed down and only moved at two or three knots, where normally the storms, they can't move too fast or they lose power, but if they're moving at about 10 or 11 knots, the eye wall does move past you in an hour or two, but for for Hugo, it took several, three or four hours, and it was in that period of time where structures just started to fatigue. They just, people, it, things just couldn't stand up to the continual onslaught, and there's some discussion about the storm actually acting like a huge tornado and hitting the island which is not real tall, but it's hilly, and having to kind of wiggle its way around the, the, the island a little bit because the eye definitely had a little S as it went through. And um, it devastated the boating community and, uh, and seriously damaged. I mean, 90% of the homes had, had bad damage. About 30 or 40% were completely totaled. And so it was, um, it was quite the experience. And it's well known that a storm at that, steady-state velocity has wind gusts that'll approach 200. They say 150-knot steady-state storm will have wind gusts that go over 215 to 220. So I think there were measurements. It's hard to say what, and, you know, it's my, my analogy for all this is when you, when you live in the mountains or you're living on an island that's mountainous, um, it's like you're a crawfish in a little stream and somebody comes along with a five-gallon bucket and dumps it into the stream and depending on the exact angle of the dump and the pressure of the dump, you could be in, in, a, in a secure spot underneath the rock on one, in one occasion, and in the next occasion, you could just get wiped out because it's almost impossible to predict how the turbulence is going to affect you. But this, all, this whole hurricane thing, which is probably one of my better stories, started with the first hurricane that approached when I was in St. Martin on board Mandala. And I anchored, like many other people, out in the lagoon. And after having spent time with Jim Brown talking about, you know, how to deploy sea anchors and what length bridle one should use and, and going through all these processes, opted on um, two anchors way out in front in this really long bridle. And the only problem with that was that behind the mountains of St. Martin, which are 1,500 feet, and drop off immediately into the lagoon, the wind would be powering on and then the gust would come and the gust would have about a 20 degree veer to it 
And so now the boat's not lined up for this. And so uh-huh. <laughs> my little trimaran would get nailed by this and would have to, if it's stretching the line, if it's stretching 300 feet, if I would be backing up 20, 25 feet, and I'd jam the rudder against the back of the boat every single time, and the, the boat would dig in its, 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 uh, the stern of one of the Amas, the starboard side, and just go nose up and go jumping across in smooth water, jumping across to try to get to where it needed to be to be in line with the wind. And it was only... It was only 80 knots of wind that was coming through. The gusts may have been higher than that. There was a little Newark trimaran that was right in front of me, and we were, you know, keeping our eye on each other. It was, it was, um, you know, it was, it was pretty amazing actually. And so, survived that. And the second storm came through a week later. And the first one was Hurricane David, and it was well south and did horrible damage to Dominica. And the second one came through a week later was Frederick. And it was an 80-knot storm, but it went right overhead. Well, I said, I'm not going to be in the lagoon. I moved way back in the lagoon into this little, tiny little basin and got as far away from the mountains as I could. And I put, I had a real short bridle this time, and I put out all four of my anchors on the bridle, put it all into one, one little thing. And um, I took, kicked the rudder off, and um, I put a little bit of water in the, in the nose of the main hull. And... The boat did much better. It oriented more quickly to the gusts, and, it, and I sat there. But I got sandblasted by the beach that was nearby, and it really it ruined that beautiful tan brown color we had on our boat. And uh, you know, the earlier green and white all was showing speckled. But anyway, survived that storm. But I learned a lot from being in two 80 knot storms. So when Hurricane Hugo was approaching on St. Croix. Not only was I telling everybody, oh man, this is going to be horrific because it's the square of the velocity, but I mean, you got to, you know, my secretary's going, oh, I think that that if the storm's not going to go here, but if the storm gets really bad, I'm going to go there. And I'm going, no, you're not. You're going to go there first and stay there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was ear popping stress. It was just. Many of my friends spent the night after their houses were demolished climbing down into their cisterns because we all collect their own water and have a swimming pool-like cement basement that's full of water where it's collected in, and they'd all go down in there and stand in two or three or four feet of water all night long because their houses were basically wiped off. There was one couple that lived in this yurt. It was about a 50 foot diameter yurt i think it's eight-sided structure and they were they were um just listen howling wind not knowing what to do trying to stay back from the the edge of the exposure and and particularly loud gusts came and they ducked behind their sofa and and or the cabinet or something there and then all of a sudden it was really different and and the noises were different and everything was different and they looked up the whole house the walls and the roof of this unit had it had torn it so it wasn't fastened down well enough onto the slab, and the whole thing had lifted up and blown over the top of the hill, and you could see it for a year or two on the other side of the hill. The whole house had blown three, two, three hundred feet over the top of the hill and down the other side. And so there, I mean, that, that was probably the most exceptional story. But there were there were stories that that fell in line with that, and. Uh, 
Well, the one I remember was about that guy in the in the uh, little Newark trimaran that uh, actually went flying in the lagoon. Yes, he he did. That's Terry Merrigan in the Dick Newark trimaran exit, and he was flipped upside down, and um, and then kind of tore the the water came in, and all of his stuff fell down onto the wet cabin roof, and he's standing up on his roof and trying to collect his stuff. And somehow or another, about five minutes later, another gust comes through and flips him back up again. And now the mast is, which had already bent and torn the, the, the tabernacle, now the mast is tearing a hole in the roof. So now he's standing in water in his hull, and his stuff that he just collected is now falling back down in the bottom of the hull. And he's trying to decide what to do, and another gust comes and flips him back upside down again. And this, I mean, now he's got a huge hole where the, the mast was, and things are falling down through this. And... Um, and he thinks it's got to be over, and then another gust comes and and throws him up onto, blows the boat up onto land and flips it over on the land and locks him down. And he he's in the boat right set up. He knows he's on land now, and he just he's petrified. And so he takes the goes up in the forepeak, and he takes the jibs and the you know the sail bags he's got and tries to make himself a little padding and a little safe spot. And he doesn't know that at the same time this Hugo Myers catamaran, Varokane, with these two German guys, has also flipped over in the same little lagoon in Salt River and somehow stuck its mast into the, into the ground as it flipped over, and the mast stuck there for a couple of years till somebody came and cut it off. <laughs> I mean, really proverbial. And the boat came and landed right next to Terry, and these two guys are... are scared out of their minds and they see this little light flashing around and they they decide that what they're going to do that i guess they're in the bushes and they crawl over to it and it's terry inside the bow of his boat through his translucent forward hatch trying to get settled in with the jibs and these two bloody guys are banging on his hatch door wanting to come in and terry's like what is going on help <laughs> he lets these two guys into what he thinks is the most dangerous place he's ever been in his whole life. And the three guys spend the rest of the night there. And then the next day, of course, they examine their their um, their demise. And 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 Jim, your son Russ's proa that had been purchased by my partner Rich went well up into the trees there, upside down. And <laughs> and and the U.S. is most. One of the most famous ocean racers, Jack Pettis with Naga, did a serious flip way up in the in one of these little trails in the lagoon and, and was stuck upside down in the mud for weeks. It took weeks before we could figure out how to flip Jack back with no you know, no place for any bulldozer or a crane or anything to get into. And um I mean the whole the whole place is a mess. It was just it was incredible how many boats were sunk and torn up and crap everywhere and and no leaves anywhere, blades of grass. It's amazing. The one thing that seemed to stand up to it all were the palm fronds because they must have acted like their primitive ancestors, like some kind of sea fans underwater blowing and folding into the, into the gust because they were able to keep much of their foliage somehow. It's all tattered and torn, but... The big trees looked like someone had come along and weed whacked them, or or trashed like somebody's fine little garden. And someone come in with a huge lawnmower and just crashed through it. And 
Some trees couldn't come back because they, they're not deciduous. They couldn't come back without their leaf space. Thanks for listening. To find out more about this historic multi-hall audio series, please visit us on the web at www.outrigmedia.com.